Oh, hello, all you beautiful body, mind, soul seekers. I'm beyond excited to be sharing this episode with you. Dr. Dan has a truly unique perspective, and I've been wanting to speak to him for a very long time. And you know what? It was well worth the wait. We cover some really interesting topics, ranging from channels to chi to the emotions of our organs. So stay tuned. But just before we launch into it, I want to let you know all about my first ever online event, the Witchy Women's Spring Equinox Circle, on the 21st of March, a time which represents new beginnings. Now, as the name suggests, this is a women's only event. I'm sorry, guys, but this is a space to celebrate the sisterhood, a sacred circle where you will be seen and supported in a way which feels like true medicine for your body, mind and soul. Tickets are £11 for you and a soul sister to come along to encourage anyone who has maybe never been to a circle, who is maybe a little unsure, to try something new. I've got you. You can click the link in my Instagram bio or go directly to Eventbrite. We did have a few glitches last week, so I'm really sorry to anyone who tried to book, but tickets really are on sale now. So let's make some magic. And with no further ado, let's welcome... Dr. Dan Keown. Dr. Daniel Keown is a doctor who trained in the Western system, specializing in emergency medicine, but has always been interested in Chinese medicine. He has, in fact, written two best-selling books, which have become seminal texts in the teaching of acupuncture, and is the founder and director of SOMA, the School of Scientific Oriental Medicine and Acupuncture. And Dan has just been such an inspiration to me, opening my eyes to the intersection between Eastern and Western philosophies, which when understood, speak a common language. I'm so pleased, Dan, that we've finally been able to sit down and have this conversation. It's amazing. And we're in, if you don't know, Mexico in Tulum. We just coincidentally happened to be in the same place at the same time. We we did, which is which is kind of crazy as well because I was hoping you would be able to come on and be one of the first guests for when the podcast started, sort of over eighteen months ago now. And lo and behold, we find ourselves here, both in Tulum at the same time, mm. having a conversation face to face. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be on board. Great, because I mean, you have such a unique perspective, Dan, having trained in the Western system. And having such an in-depth knowledge understanding of Chinese medicine and the Eastern philosophies of health. And it's that sort of intersection, it's that sort of common language that I would really love to explore during this conversation. So just to start us off, like how did you, you know, get interested in Chinese medicine in the first place? Mm. Well, it was it was my grandmother, of all people, who first mentioned about Chinese medicine. And I remember I was a kind of spotty arrogant 15 year old and my very into science you know I used to win science prizes and things at school and uh, my grandmother I remember my grandmother teaching me about how the Chinese had this philosophy this uh, understanding of health and disease you know that came out through acupuncture and how the fact that the West mistook the fact that this was so primitive and never changed um, for it being wrong when in fact the reason it had never changed was because it was always right and it was that really simple logic that kind of got to me at the time and uh, it, it planted a seed in my 
mind that uh, I was going to try and understand what was going on with Chinese medicine. Uh, and from there, uh, I wasn't a particularly confident teenager. I'm not sure how many young males are confident teenagers. And I, I certainly didn't have the confidence to go out and do acupuncture back in the early 90s when, uh, when you know, I was leaving school. And so I did the safe thing in a way and went off and did medicine, always with the desire that one day I would go back and, and try and get to grips and understand Chinese medicine. Then I went off and did medicine. And, and then I went and did emergency medicine in Australia and loved it and really got a sense of how wonderful Western medicine could be. And I came back to the UK and at that point, I, I, something happened to my father. He got really ill, ended up on ITU and through a extraordinary set of coincidences, it was an aspect of Chinese medicine that kind of got him out of ITU. I knew at that point I had to go and do a degree in Chinese medicine. The big take-home point, with all due respect to my teachers, was I, I don't think they really understood what was going on in Chinese medicine, and they certainly didn't convey any understanding to me. So I went to China and studied with a chap called Dr. Wang Ju Yi, and he was very clear about what was going on. He had a clarity of understanding that immediately resonated with me, especially with regard to the structure of channels or what's erroneously been translated as meridians. Um, and in fact, he said, it's just the spaces in the body. And I'd spent so many hours and years of my life holding retractors for surgeons that I immediately knew there were loads of spaces in the body. This made perfect sense to me. And so that's, that was the kind of inspiration to like sparking the machine. And, and then the spark in the machine, which is my first book, started to give me a bit of financial freedom to move outside of Western medicine and, and practice acupuncture more. And then that got me thinking further. And then I was able to write The Uncharted Body, which is much more of a textbook of exactly why acupuncture works. And that kind of takes, takes me to where I am now, really which is just trying to transform our healthcare system into something that serves patients. So you've mentioned something that's really sort of piqued my interest and something I definitely want to delve into straight away. And this is what you've, you know, this is the area of channels that we're talking about. Mm. Because as you say, you know, we've all heard of meridians and they seem this very mysterious kind of invisible lines that sort of traverse our bodies in ways that the western doctor looks at and does not understand it doesn't seem to follow our venous or our arterial systems and we can't see it and when western doctors can't see something yeah they really um they they don't believe it well what happened was the so the original chinese words were in fact they're not so much worse as characters because to understand like a, a bit about chinese medicine you kind of have to understand the Chinese language as well. It's inevitable. Uh, the reason being it's so different to our language that if you don't understand their language and the structure of their language, then you start to get into problems. So their written language is formed of characters. And these characters are well-named because they are characters. They're, they're little drawings that represent 
something that's going on. And so, for instance, the number three, which is San, is just drawn as three lights or, you know, so it's just three sticks of wood, you know, easy, very easy to understand. Um, and then you'll get more complex characters like yin and yang, for instance, which are drawn as the sunny and shady side of a hill. So there literally is a hill with the sun shining on one side and, and the shade on the other side. That's what the character is of yin and yang. And then we get into, and, and yin and yang are a good example, yeah? There was no easy translation into a Western word, into an English word or a French word or a Spanish word or anything. So those words ended up being used in our language. We just took those words in the same way that we don't have a sombrero in uh, or tequila in English. Um, so it's the same with these characters, Jing Lua, which is basically what was translated as meridians. They're really interesting characters. Uh, and they really make perfect sense in terms of what they're describing, but you have to get into the characters and what they're drawn as it's a, it's a it's quite a story of themselves actually explaining what they're drawn at. But very simply, the easiest and most succinct translation is into channels, like in the same way of channels of water or rivers of water. In fact, Jing is drawn as rivers of water that flow underground, carrying a, a semi-mystical substance such as qi, and um, which themselves are en enveloped in a fabric which is fascia itself. And, and Loire is drawn as a network of channels. So the word meridians is just a terrible translation of this. The guy who translated it was a Frenchman who wasn't the doctor. He was a great guy, uh, Georges Soulier de Morand, and he was doing his best, but he just, he just couldn't, you know, he, he, he just up against it. He couldn't translate this into something that was clean, in the English vernacular. And as a result, he, he used this word meridians, but this was over 120 years ago. <laughs> and, um, and this was just one man doing his best. We're, you know, we're a, a long way past that now. And, and we really shouldn't be using this word anymore. It's, we, we, we certainly could make it a much more complex uh, word than channels, but we should, Channels is a start in the right direction. Connective tissue network isn't bad. I would actually say that in all seriousness, you, we're just going to have to say Zhong Lua. In the same way, you use yin yang, qi, sombrero, tequila, um, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. which are Latin words, aren't they? Mm -hmm. you know, we, mm -hmm. we just have to accept the fact that sometimes these concepts are, uh, are, are ready-made and we can just use them themselves. So ideally, I would use the word Xinhua, but channels, at least the word channels conveys this concept of a, a, a potential space that can carry a substance. And, and that then dovetails really nicely with our anatomical knowledge of the body. When, when you talk to uh, a doctor, you know, for instance yourself, about, uh, you, know, the, you know, what are the acupuncture meridians and then you say well they're not really meridians they're channels and they say okay what are the channels and you say well they're the spaces within the body okay so where are these spaces in the body well they're the same spaces that surgeons use to operate in the fascial planes oh okay okay yeah i kind of buy that but they don't carry anything do they yes they do you know fascial spaces definitely transmit fluids and water and lymphatic fluids 
So it, it kind of like having that clarity of understanding and use of language really opens up uh, uh, our, our understanding of what's going on. That's why it's important. That's why it is important. And actually, it was you explaining this to me during an acupuncture session that we had together that really started to open my mind to um, the use of language and how that really challenges uh, the notion that we don't really know or we can't really understand what is going on um, within the the Chinese framework. Because suddenly when you're talking about fascial planes and connective tissue networks and you've got potential spaces with fluid passing through, which we know there's a lubricating fluid and within um, fascial planes and as doctors, it suddenly does sort of click into place and make sense and suddenly challenge the belief that this was complete nonsense. So So if you use the word meridians, then then, I mean, what you're saying is that, well, these are man-made constructs that we're going to superimpose over the body, which is what a meridian is. It's a man-made construct superimposed over the body, whereas actually but actually, what we're really talking about we're using an earth analogy is the channels of water that flow underneath the earth's surface that, um, that do transmit water, and certainly within feng shui and also geomancy, which is the Western version of feng shui, to transmit energy as well, without a shadow of a doubt. And this is another wonderful word, energy, that is often mis- mistranslated, again, as some sort of ethereal kind of um, woo-woo, uh, you know, mm. concept that we can't possibly understand. And it's sort of, if we can change the language around this, which from my understanding, if we're thinking about, um, we're thinking about a connective tissue network, we're thinking about fascial planes, and then we're thinking of fluids inside, and we're thinking of what, of, of a flow of energy, are we talking about electrical uh, systems? Are we talking about mm. conductive electrical signals that are being, are, are we really seeing the path of least resistance yeah. through the yeah. fascial planes that actually represent the channels? Is that, it, it, would that be a fair representation of yeah, what a I meridian so. commonly, let's, I know this word is problematic, but like, is that actually what it represents? Yeah, I, I in my opinion, like, what chi is is i would define chi as the organizational force of the body best seen in the embryo and it's effectively uh, an electrical force to all intents and purposes and and actually when you think about this logically and dig down you, you know you realize that immediately straight away a cell only functions because of an electrical charge across its membrane as soon as that electrical charge disappears uh, the cell will die. And in fact, it's, it gets even more intimate than that because a mitochondria, which produces all of the energy for the cell, only functions because of an intense electrical force across its membrane. You know, I think it's 100 minus 140 millivolts, which is insanely high. It's basically, because the mitochondria is so tiny, it's basically a, enough electrical potential to create a lightning bolt. And what this electricity does across a, a mitochondrial membrane is drive uh, a, a chemical reaction that produces molecules of ATP, amongst other stuff. And then the cell then uses that ATP as kind of a um, you know fuel, gasoline, or whatever you want to call it, to then create more electricity uh, along its membrane. Now, the interesting thing is, like 
that's the cell. The cell definitely runs on electricity. So does the rest of the body run on electricity? That's the next question. Well, we know that the heart certainly runs on electricity. The muscles definitely run on electricity. The, the brain runs on electricity. So when you look at the organs, you find that they're running on electricity as well. And, and this is much more difficult to, uh, to discover. I mean, the heart, without a shadow of a doubt, we know it runs on electricity. But We know, and we measure that all the time. So, I mean, almost everyone who's walked into a hospital gets an ECG, so an electrocardiogram. And it's really easy to conceptualize that the heart is running on electricity. So it's something mm. that a Western doctor can also, you know, we can stay with you at this point. Like yeah. We're following yeah. at this point. <laughs> yeah. We get yeah. it. This is something that we're familiar with. So, you know, and then, but beyond that, so when you're talking about other organs, that mm. does become more problematic to understand. It's not something that we're used to talking about or conceptualizing. It's really difficult to like work out how these organs actually run on electricity but they do they do and what you've got to do is start to like so for instance with the heart because it's such a powerful um organ its electricity is is, is very and it's coordinated its electricity in a, in a very kind of visceral way so it, it radiates out from you know the, the body itself like a fire but when you look at the electricity running within the other organs it's less coordinated in such a way and so for that reason you know, all the waveforms probably interfere with each other and you don't get this uh, coordinated waveform that radiates from the body. What you have to do with the other organs is start to break it down into what I call functional units. Or So for instance, one example of a functional unit is a nephron, which effectively is a miniature kidney. It runs exactly, if you had like one nephron and then times it by half a million, you'd have a kidney. That's all a kidney is. It's one nephron times half a million in a human anyway. And um, and when you look at that nephron, the most important part of the nephron is Bowman's capsule. And Bowman's capsule is this effectively membrane on which one side lies blood and the other side lies urine. And what scientists can do is stick an electrode either side of Bowman's capsule. And they could, what they find is there's an electrical charge across this membrane. But these scientists then mess up this electrical charge. And when they do that, when they mess up the electrical charge, the nephron stops working. So their conclusion is that the electrical charge is intrinsic to the function of the nephron. Now, this is what qi is. This is how qi operates. Qi is basically this ability to organize things within our body. And in the nephron, what it's doing is it's organizing what substances go from the blood into the urine, which is obviously the most important thing in the kidney function, because what the kidney has to do is select what substances it excretes and what substances it keeps in the blood. And all kidney disease effectively is a uh, disorder of that function. And, you know, to my mind, it's very clear that the entire body runs on electricity. The organs run on this organized electricity. And this is what the Chinese are talking about with qi. That's so interesting that that is what qi is, because again, it, it, because of the language barrier and, and its conceptual nature, this, this, as in its removal from uh, direct anatomy that is 
you know, you developed at a time, well, when you can't see it. And also anatomy was, you know, based on cadaver studies, you know, yeah. this is based on yeah. cadaver. So in the 17th century, when, you know, doctors were coming out of universities and learning about the human body in this new way, they were doing it with cadavers. So they, yeah. it's, obvious, it's, it's, it's almost like no surprise that they couldn't see or, or, or conceptualize electricity, as an example, was uh, a key component of what keeps the, an organism alive yeah but almost like it i think it's outrageous that we we've missed this it's just like it's so it, it, it it's so obvious to me that you know i mean come on we all learned one of the earliest things we learned in medical school was this electrical membrane potential across the cell in fact you, you learn it before medical school you learn it in gcse biology you learn it the very basics of biology you learn about the you know, sodium potassium pump. Now that's the key thing is what we're learning about. It's this way of creating a paradigms, I suppose. It's a par- the paradigm in which we've been taught is that everything is occurring at a material level. So it's not electricity that's being pumped across the membrane, it's sodium or potassium. That creates an electrical charge. Now, yeah, okay, that is true. It is sodium and potassium that's being, if they said that was the chi pump, it would be equally true. If they said that was an electricity pump, it would be equally true. You could say, and in fact, more true, I would say. I'm pretty sure that it doesn't matter whether it's sodium or potassium you're pumping across, so long as you get that electrical gradient going across the cell membrane, I'm pretty sure the cell would function to a lesser or greater extent. You know, how else are we missing the understanding here? What else is being lost in translation? So much, I mean, what Chinese medicine teaches is just this really simple understanding of the body, yet so complete. And what they do at an anatomical level is divide everything into what are called six divisions, um, which are these embryological divisions, which we as doctors will remember as endoderm, ectoderm, and mesoderm. Yeah. Now, endoderm remains consistent throughout your body. Everything that started off as endoderm in the very early embryo continues as endoderm. It makes the lining of your gastrointestinal tract and it makes also the pancreas in your lung and um, the lining of your sinuses and stuff. All of that becomes one division within Chinese medicine called Tai Yin. And then ectoderm, which makes your skin and interestingly also transforms cells within your body to turn into a bladder also makes what's called Tai Yang. And the mesoderm in the middle, so anyone who's listening to this who's not a doctor is probably a bit lost here, but to a doctor, they'll be like, holy shit, this is embryology, I remember this. (laughs) And it scared me. The mesoderm in the middle, which forms all of the kind of gelatinous mass within your body, your heart, your your kidneys, um, the muscular layers of your intestinal organs, your liver, and so on and so on, and muscles and bones, that splits into effectively four layers, which the Chinese then describe as um, these four layers. Now, these six divisions within the body um, can then explain what's going on within the body very accurately and and in a way that's very simple. Because... The Western system sees each organ almost as a functional unit, a standalone yeah. functional unit. Um, but the Chinese system seems to see these functional units 
based on their embryological lines. And therefore, the relationship between these systems is key to understanding and being able to predict the impact of um, disease in that line. It does that in a more simple way than yeah. the Western system um, conceptualizes these things. And it's way more simple. It's way more simple. Yeah. I can really I can really see that. I can really see that. And something else that we've talked um, about before, which I would love to explore in this conversation, is the emotions of the organs and how actually this Chinese system also seems to integrate our emotions our emotions within the function of the organs. I mean, yeah. that is something that definitely the Western system does not. Uh, so things are all going on in the brain. Things are all going on in the brain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yes. when you get a panic attack, for instance, you know, a Western doctor who's very Western doctory will just say, that's your stupid brain being stupid, thinking that there's, you know, you need to panic. The Chinese doctor will go, no, that's a kidney and heart disturbance yeah the the heart the kidney so the kidney includes the adrenal gland mm-hmm. yeah which is adrenal above the kidney obviously it sits within the same fascial envelope um there's a reason they called it adrenal the ancient anatomist and basically what the adrenal gland is is the messenger system of the kidney so the kidney when it gets distressed in some way will basically tell the rest of the body through hormones which are released through the blood, that it's distressed and it needs to respond appropriately. Now, the main organ it will tell is the heart, yeah, because the heart and the kidney are like two poles for magnet. And the physiology here starts to get a little bit more complex. Um, so the, the actual panic attack, now it's being registered in the brain without a shadow of a doubt. And the brain may well have a role in this, yeah. The psychology of people's response to to stimuli might be is, is almost certainly wrong. I mean, by by the very nature, it's a panic attack. It is wrong. A panic attack effectively is completely appropriate if there's a lion waiting to pounce on you, then you kind of should be panicking. <laughs> and the panic attack will probably serve you well in some ways to you know fight or or flight but uh, you know in in this on with a kind of true panic attack what's happening is there's a psychological problem in in your brain which is then activating the adrenal gland and the kidneys and also the heart and then you get this loop this negative feedback loop between the heart the kidney and the brain which is why with panic attacks you do get palpitations and you do get that sense of fear and you do get almost certainly the high blood pressure that would suggest that the body is preparing for a response to some kind of dangerous stimuli. So the emotions, the idea that the emotions are occurring in, in your brain is erroneous. The emotions, in my opinion, are, are actually mainly occurring in your body. Your brain is registering them and they can certainly make these emotions worse. They can respond badly. To these the emotional responses from your body, which is where psychology comes in. And so what emotion would you say the kidney holds? Would you say the kidney is the organ for fear? A hundred percent. So yeah, kidney yeah. is and the willpower, organ for fear. Yeah. And willpower. Willpower, yeah. Tell me yeah. more. So so it's yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, the word so the messenger organ of the kidney, uh, otherwise known as a uh, endocrine system adrenal gland is the messenger for the kidney so when the lung is distressed in some way the thyroid gland is what tells the rest of the body about this yeah through hormones so i want 
this is a beautiful kind of way in which um, the Chinese and you know language is so important because it makes total sense when you think about the adrenal glands and what hormone they produce. Yeah, adrenaline, adrenaline. noradrenaline. That these are the hormones are released when you feel fear. Yeah. So when we talk about actually the emotions of the organs, although that sounds so out there for a Western doctor to understand, when we sort of dial that back and we're really sort of trying to understand what the Chinese system is to actually telling us, it suddenly doesn't sound so strange. No, it makes perfect sense. It yeah. makes perfect sense. So what? What's so to use the kidneys, the adrenal to to understand this, we have to kind of it's a it's a lot more physiology. Very simple. But another level, it's a paradigm shift. And, and so in that way, it's complex. Because in Western model, these are all separate things. The adrenaline from the adrenal gland, the kidney, the heart, the brain, and blood are all separate. Now, whereas in the Chinese model, they're all the same, effectively. And I'll give you an example of what happens in real life that hopefully will never happen yeah, to you. Yeah, So you're out there in Mexico, come across a jaguar that bites your leg and chops half your leg off. You lose blood. Immediately, your blood pressure drops. Your kidneys, whose primary job actually maintaining blood pressure, that's the primary, they're about pressure. Your kidneys immediately start picking up this drop in blood pressure. Go, whoa, we've got a problem. Yeah, big problem. Release through their messenger organ, the adrenal, a load of adrenaline, which goes to the heart to increase pressure, to keep the pressure up so that you can run away with one leg, <laughs> and also goes to the brain to give you a sense of fear, hell away from this dangerous animal that's trying to kill you. So that's what's going on. These are not disparate things. This is one system that's operating relatively smoothly to perform a role to protect us in the environment. And that's what fear is doing in this situation. It's protecting us. And dopamine is interesting because dopamine actually is the precursor of adrenaline. So you need, so you have to have enough dopamine, which is like willpower in order to generate the fear. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. That's yeah. really interesting because we know dopamine, or I've heard of dopamine as a reward sort of hormone. So the, mm. the, the, the hormone that we get hits of whenever we get a like on Instagram or with with, with dopamine as, as the reward, which motivates us to keep doing whatever it is we're doing that gives us that dopamine hit. So now I can understand Mm. that actually that's why associated within the Chinese system with, with willpower. Willpower, yeah. That's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. That's why I love this intersection so <laughs> yeah. much. Can you give me another example of how this works? Yeah, so the, the liver the liver is, is an interesting one because the liver is all about anger. And so the in my opinion, the, the hormone that's, um, that's really um, modulating that emotion is histamine. And histamine is a is a, so the liver is the primary organ that clears histamine from your blood, you know. And if you don't, if you have too much histamine in your blood, then you get angry red spots on on your uh, on your skin, you know, urticaria, for instance. But also, like histamine is the uh, is the hormone that starts building up in your brain when you start to get tired, as well. And so that 
angry irritability, so irritability being the precursor of anger, is, is actually caused by an increase of histamine in your, butt, in your uh, brain. The first sign of liver failure is that sleep-wake cycle gets disturbed, gets disturbed. And also, what's the classic person who gets liver failure? The angry drunk. You know, it's this the, the anger and liver so clearly linked together. Another good one, actually, one of my favorites is uh, the spleen and serotonin. So this is a, a bit more difficult to unpick. So, so everyone thinks of serotonin as a, as a brain chemical, but in fact, it should really be called enterotonin, which is what it was originally called because almost all your serotonin is found in your gut. And when 95% of your serotonin is found in your gut, and when your gut releases any serotonin, sometimes it does that because um, of pathogens, for instance, in your, uh, in, in your gut, it will release loads of serotonin via the enterochromaffin cells. And they are the, the platelets within your blood will then greedily grab all of the serotonin in your blood and the platelets themselves are stored in the spleen and the spleen modulates and um, governs the platelets. So the spleen indirectly is then governing serotonin via platelets within your blood. So serotonin is a chemical in your brain that also is in the, the one disease, in my opinion, that's most clearly linked to serotonin in the brain is obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a disorder of thinking. You know, and I, I remember once I had a patient, constantly, this when I was working in New Zealand, and this patient came in every single day or week or whatever with the same, you know, she was one of those patients that everyone knew. She was harmless, but she was always, she was a hypochondriac worrying about stuff, and she was kind of, Back then, I didn't really understand about this emotional level of disease and that it's just as important, if not more important than the physical level, yeah? And, and as an emergency doctor, my God, it transforms your practice once you start becoming more aware of the emotional aspect of disease, transforms your practice. You become a much better doctor. But anyway, so she was just annoying at this point. Now I find her highly interesting. But at some point, someone referred her to a psychiatrist and a psychiatrist diagnosed with OCD and put it on a serotonin reuptake inhibitor or flu, you know, Prozac. And she stopped coming. She was cured. And, and it, was, it was, so in Chinese medicine, they would say that thinking disorder was a spleen problem. In Western medicine, they'd say it's an abnormality of serotonin metabolism within the brain. And so the approach from the Chinese system, can you explain how a Chinese doctor would approach that yeah so um once you start to understand how the patterns are arranged then um we we would just try and um fix that with acupuncture and that's another story about exactly how you fix it with acupuncture where how the chi flows and how you get the chi flowing correctly it's I, I, it's not any more sophisticated or complex than electrical engineering um if you understand the principles of how an electrical circuit works and how electricity moves around a circuit and how it can go wrong and how an electrical engineer could fix that, that's pretty much, in essence, what you're doing with acupuncture. You're just fi fixing the electrical flow within the body. Science is very clear that there's an electrical force 
that governs how the body is generated. Um, and in fact, there's scientists out there who have messed around with this electrical force and uh, screwed it up and the body doesn't generate correctly. But that is something that Chinese call Yuan Qi, which is origin or embryological Qi. Now, when the body actually exists, what happens is the body generating itself, which is the biggest mystery of all, how the body starts from a single cell and turns into a 30 trillion cell organism. Um, once that's actually organized, how then does the qi operate? And, and the Chinese say, well, this becomes a different qi. Same principles in the same way that the water in Sonotes is the same water in a lake, it's the same water coming out of our tap, but it's all got different form, it's got a different energy, if you like, and it's got a different function, but it's the same water. Um, and what happens in the mature body is that this chi is, is different, it's doing different things, it's no longer forming uh, the body. So those embryological nodes that I talk about in the sparkling machine, which are the reason why the acupuncture points are where they are, at that point, they are they function as acupuncture points, but the chi that they're what they're actually doing is taking the chi from the organs, which has to flow out from the body in the same way that electricity or water has to flow from high to low pressure, and and they're just manipulating it in a certain way, and and that starts to get into like the science and art of acupuncture and exactly why putting a needle into the channel at the end of the finger has a different effect on the chi to putting a needle in um, to the elbow. And just to circle back, I'm still curious to explore the emotions again. We've covered, you know, the liver and how that links to irritability, which yeah. is sensed in the brain. So the, so the liver, and um, because it loses its ability to metabolize histamine. Yeah, yeah causes an irritability in our uh, emotional state. That's right. You were mentioning around um, the lungs and mm. links with the thyroid gland. Yeah. Can you explain the emotions of our lungs? So the lung, yeah, the lung is unsurprisingly about inspiration. And um, also that ability to connect to those higher aspects of life. The way I see it is like, like if you actually just looked at life logically, you would be crushed by the sheer pointlessness of it. <laughs> because it's like, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, you're gonna die. And go forward a thousand years, everyone will have forgotten you. Guaranteed, yeah? Apart from maybe if you're Jesus or someone. Um, so what's the point you could say? And, and the lungs is that, the lung is that organ that brings in air, brings in chi, brings in those, uh, aspects of life. It's the highest organ in our body. Uh, the brain in Chinese medicine is really considered to be an organ. It, the brain is like the governor. So it's like a, a manager, if you like. And I think this is accurate. It doesn't bring in anything useful. In, in fact, actually, I kind of see it like government. Um, <laughs> good government. So good government, in my opinion, should say about 20% tax flat across everything. And that's what the brain takes. It takes 20% blood flow uh, from the body. It doesn't give anything back in return, but 
that ensures harmony between all the organs and ensures like that the entirety of your organism does well, like good government. Um, so it doesn't actually, the Chinese say, look, this isn't really uh, an organ go, it, it doesn't, definitely the brain doesn't have this big role in, in how your body functions that Western doctors erroneously ascribe to it often. Um, and this is borne out by the fact that if you have a spinal cord transaction, transaction, um, you know, like Christopher Reeve had, um, the body carries on existing fine. You've just got to make sure the lungs ventilate and, um, you know, a bit of help with swallowing. But once you get past those two things, the body is absolutely fine. Lived for what? He lived for decades, didn't he? Um, so the, the brain does not have this um, kind of godlike role over the body yet. The heart, the intestines, liver, the kidneys, they all know exactly what to do without brain telling them what to do. In the same way that like if the government suddenly collapsed, assuming there was still money and water supply and stuff, all the shops, local shops would be fine. Everyone would be like, you know, carry on. So the lung is actually the highest organ in the body in this sense. And it, it takes in that um, ephemeral, like spiritual aspects, again, same word, spirit, which comes from the Greek breath. And so that's the emotional aspect of the lungs. And the thyroid, if you've ever bumped in someone with really low thyroid, they just seem uninspired. They seem like crushed by life. And, and that's what the emotion of, that's, that's how the lungs relate with thyroxin and the emotion of the thyroid gland. And the way a Western doctor understands a thyroid gland and what the what thyroxin does is it works with the metabolism. So it's, mm. it's, sort of, it's, it's there to... Well, technically, um, it, it modulates the respiration of the cell. It modulates the respiration of the cell. Yeah. Yes, it does. Through it, it, it does it through um, the mitochondria, which will obviously impact the rate of respiration of the body. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the lungs. It. Exactly, you got it. So it's the same. It's the same. So you're you're respiring at a macro level through your lungs, and then the thyroxine modulates your uh, the respiration of the mitochondria. Oh, the poetry. It's the poetry beautiful. is really, really beautiful. And that's what I really have grown to love um, about understanding the, the, this, the Chinese system. And it seems as though, you know, we see the endocrine system as a discrete system within the Western mm. paradigm. Mm. And so it, it leaves us sort of scrambling to remember you know, what controls what and where it acts and where it comes from, because there isn't relationship established, um, yeah. which the Chinese system yeah. has integral to it. And that does make it a more, a seemingly more sophisticated and complete. Oh, um, a hundred. And system. the thyroid, the thyroid, so this connection between thyroid and lung doesn't just occur at an emotional level, also at a kind of linguistic level, you know, they both act by respiration or even at a physiological level. If you increase respiration of the mitochondria, you also need to increase the respiration of your lungs because the mitochondria are going to be using more oxygen. It's also embryological. The thyroid gland is derived from endoderm, which is exactly what the lungs derive from. And in fact, the thyroid gland grows out from the same place as the lung and looks like a, 
a, a miniature lung. So it's not just a kind of, oh, let's force those two things together. They're already together. It's just we're not, we're not we're not kind of forcing things together, but you know a lot of the Western medicine does. It, it, it's like these things are already together. We're just noticing the link. And what really um, interests me around you know the lungs being um, the organ of inspiration, which I just love, mm. because so much of spiritual practice focuses on the breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's this link between the breath mm. and our inspiration and we use our breath through yoga we, we focus on our breath and meditation the power of the breath has been emphasized with Wim Hof breath work you know these are mm. all practices that really focus on the breath and the importance of the breath to foster a state of mind that inspires us yeah that inspires us, you know, we do yoga, meditation to get clarity, thoughts. And um, it's just really interesting to me that the breath and the lungs are integral to, are the organs of inspiration in Chinese medicine. Yeah. Again, to be a poetry just to me is so interesting. They, they also govern like the, the, the Chinese talk about how the breath governs the flow. So the breath is, so it's interesting this word chi again it's um it's again energy is n- not necessarily the most accurate translation it's it's not terrible it's not like meridians it's, i wouldn't I, I would actually say spirit is the most accurate translation of breath and the reason sorry of chi and the reason being because chi if you look at the actual characters drawn as clouds or vapors rising from a, a grain of rice that's breaking open, either being cooked or possibly germinating, yeah? Now, the Chinese, if you take this word qi, will say this word is breath or air. They're they're, they're really clear about it in in their vernacular, you know, because what they do in Chinese is they combine uh, lots of characters together. It's a a much more, um, it's it's a much simpler language where they combine stuff the whole time. So there are literally over 100 words that have qi in its root. And every single time it's in place of air or possibly breath. So for instance, hovercraft, they call air boat, qi boat. Hair dryer, they call an air dryer, qi dryer. Yeah. Um, and so, so qi, so people, you know, real students of Chinese medicine say, no, 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 qi's not, qi's not basically energy. Qi is, is breath or air yeah and then it's like well that's interesting because we've got the word spirit which also comes from breath and so to me chi really is about breath is about spirit so i would say what chi is is the spirit of your body in that sense it's this and and again spirit is something that doesn't it's an energy that moves around your body and so what the chinese say is the lungs can direct this, the lungs are like the masters of chi, if you like, and they they can kind of direct it around your body. And this comes into like chi gong and those crazy martial artists. When those crazy martial artists do stuff where they apparently just hit people that they haven't even touched, yeah, and you just think, oh, they're faking. You 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 look at it and you think everyone's just faking it. I don't know. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. But but they would say no. What they're doing is directing chi through their their breath. 
and and so yeah, it's it's, it's a love again. It's a it's a, it's a really interesting understanding of the true meaning that we have to these words because spirit just seems so um, ephemeral and mm. um, and again not something that is um, part of the Western paradigm um, in how we see the body we don't consider that there is a spirit which is our breath and yet you know the words are the same I think this is the most insane aspect of Western medicine of all. It's insane. It's actually insane, in my opinion. The idea, like, I, if you go to the classic textbook of emergency medicine, Tintinale, yeah? <laughs> you ever read it? Yes, that's the, that's the textbook <laughs> that um, all Australian trainees, of yeah. which I am also, has to read. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so Tintinale. If you go to the back of that book and look up spirit, it's not there. It's not there. And yet spirit is the key aspect of medicine. Spirit is the reason why people come and see you as a doctor. And the only time people don't come to you because of a disorder of their spirit, yeah, there's something wrong. Yeah, something has come to the attention of their spirit that has brought them to you. So in other words, you know, because you can have people who have complaints you know, you, you can have you can have somebody basically chop their finger off, won't come and see you because it hasn't bothered their spirit at some level, yeah. But it's when it hits that like it's bothering my spirit effectively. Obviously, they won't say that, but that's why they come to see. You. And the only time that doesn't happen is when they're unconscious, and then it's bothering someone else's spirit. You know, so spirit is the very raison d'être of why people come to see you, and yet it's and and it's also. I would define it as the difference between life and death. Yeah? Spirit is the, the key difference between life and death. If you take somebody yeah, and literally knock the spirit out of them, effectively they're dead. But that person physically will be exactly the same as they were a second before when they were alive. So, all right, let, let's say you electrocute them yeah, with, uh, you know, uh, a very low voltage that just happens to hit their heart at the right time. And so they go into uh, VF and rapidly go into um, asystole. Yeah. And so basically at that, you know, that takes a few seconds, um, a few seconds before their body was exactly the same as it is now. The only difference is an absence of energy. And what I would describe is effectively spirit. Yeah. Why are you using that word spirit in a lack of energy? Because I would define spirit as the difference between life and death. That's my definition of spirit. Chi as well, same thing. You could define chi like that, but it, it's the thing is I don't define chi like that because it's not a useful definition of chi. So when I define chi as the organizational force of the body best seen in the embryos, because that's a useful definition to guide treatment. Um, and the reason I use the word chi rather than spirit is because uh, chi has, and they're the same in my opinion, yeah, um, effectively, but chi has this entire back catalogue of um, understanding behind it, whereas spirit has almost nothing. It's just a word that uh, people understand at a kind of uh, colloquial level. I, I would categorise it like this, the, the, the primary the primary pathology that goes on with people is always a problem of spirit, always. 
Um, what that then does, the spirit then basically has to communicate often through emotions. So it uses emotions to organize its communication. So in other words, the spirit is pissed off in some way. So it uses anger. And then actually physical complaints are actually almost underneath that in terms of importance. Now, often this can be reversed. This can be reversed. But in, in my mind, it's the, the spirit's the most important. The spirit is the thing to address the first as a doctor, yeah? The emotions need to be addressed next and then the physical problem, yeah? And in that order, yeah? And every good doctor does that. You know, you do that. I'm sure of it. The person comes in, you know, with basically a severe car accident, leg hanging off. The first thing you'll say is, you know, kind of, you know, zooming they're anxious <laughs> is, you know, don't worry, we're going to fix you kind of thing. Um, and um, and so you, that's administering to the spirit. You already do it. Every good doctor ministers to the spirit. Yeah. And and every good doctor also also administers, uh, sorts out the emotions as well, whether they're aware they're doing this or not. It's called bedside manner. As Western doctors, we, we focus so much and we focus solely on, on, on the physical that we miss lot within the emotional and I have a sort of you know because it's all fair and good saying you know you need to be more understanding as a doctor you need to be more empathetic as a doctor Mm. and all of that however I find that quite grating um as as a doctor on the in the on the front line doctors generally in the NHS are uh, it can't give any more <laughs> and you know empathy wise it's like they're all burnt out and yeah. it's, it's impossible it's, it's like asking someone who is that you know it's like you cannot pour from an empty cup and yeah. the more doctors are stretched to the degree they are and nurses and all of the allied health staff then asking to give more emotional support is just um, impossible yeah However, by not giving doctors um, the correct training and the correct sort of conditions through which they can actually deliver what they need to be delivering, which is mm. so often emotional and spiritual support. Yeah. I mean, would you say doctors are dispirited? Yes, I would. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a natural consequence of a medicine that has no spirit in it. That's why they're dispirited. They literally have no spirit in their medicine. So, of course, they're going to become dispirited because we're all spiritual creatures. They're spiritual creatures. They're trying to deal with a patient who ultimately is coming in with a spiritual problem. And they've got no, the only spiritual tools they've got to deal with that are outside of their medicine. There literally isn't anything in their textbooks about spirit. The medicine's fundamentally flawed. It can only work in a materialistic, material level, which is why. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Dan, folks. We actually spoke for over three hours and I will be sharing the second half of our conversation with you another time. But before I sign off for the week, if you find yourself in need of some soul medicine, and gosh, who doesn't in such times we are all living through, the Witchy Women Spring Equinox Circle is coming really soon. So book your ticket for Monday the 21st of March for an evening of joy spent exploring intentions and birthing new beginnings on this auspicious day. The equinox represents fertility and we will reconnect and remember the hopes and dreams still awaiting their birth. This is a time to reconnect with ourselves and each other, 
using movement as meditation to dance to the music of our souls. You'll emerge newly inspired to plant seeds and create, to take action in service of your dreams. Attending is the ultimate act of self-care. So do join us. Just click the link in my bio or head directly to Eventbrite. I truly hope to see you there. Mm -hmm.